I'm Bonnie Lin, Director of the China Power Project and Senior Fellow for Asian Security at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Happy New Year, and thank you for tuning in to the first episode of the China Power Podcast in 2022. For today, we will be discussing Congress's approach to China's growing global power. China's economic and political heft has increasingly captured the attention of the U.S. Congress as a critical issue for U.S. economic and national security. In recent years, China has built up its military capabilities at a rapid pace, and it has increasingly flexed its military muscle across regions like the South China Sea and Taiwan Strait. China has also engaged in targeted economic coercion campaigns against countries, most recently Australia, that do not align themselves with Beijing's interests and narratives. Beijing has also attempted to shape global views in its favor through coordinated disinformation and propaganda campaigns. These actions and others have contributed to growing concerns in Washington about China's ambitions and have consequently led to a worsening of U.S.-China ties. How does Congress view China's growing strength on the global stage? Joining us today to discuss Congress's approach to China is Representative Ami Berra, who has represented California's 7th Congressional District since 2013. Representative Berra is currently a member of the House Foreign Affairs Committee, where he serves as chairman of the Subcommittee on Asia, the Pacific, Central Asia, and Nonproliferation. He is also a senior member on the House Committee on Science, Space, and Technology, and co-chair of the Korea Caucus. Representative Barra, thanks so much for joining us today. Bonnie, thanks for having me on. So I want to start this conversation by getting to know you first and learning about your work as it relates to China. Could you share with us what you do on a day-to-day and how you think about China? Sure. This is now my fifth term in Congress and my second term as chair on the House Foreign Affairs um, subcommittee on Asia, the Pacific, Central Asia, and nonproliferation. So a lot of my time is focused on the work that the subcommittee is doing, you know, whether that's legislative, public hearings, or briefings for the other members of Congress. And obviously, with a focus on the Indo-Pacific, China does occupy a large part of our thinking. I think how we think about China, or certainly how I'm thinking about China, is where are areas that we can work together as Democrats and Republicans, where we have common interests? Where can we work in a bicameral way? Because I do think if we're thinking about China's strategy, we know China is playing a very long game, and we have to have a U.S. strategy vis-a-vis the Indo-Pacific, but also in the, the competition with China. And that can't be a Democratic or Republican strategy. It's got to be a U.S. strategy. And I think that's kind of at a high level how I'm thinking about this. You mentioned the need for a U.S. strategy. Could you describe what you see as the contours of the Biden administration's approach toward China? Many have pointed out that there seems to be quite a bit of continuity between the Trump administration and the Biden administration when it comes to China. Yeah, I think how I'd characterize the Trump administration, and I said this publicly, is I didn't question the issues that they're raising. Some of the methods and tactics that they use to address those issues, whether it was trade policy, you know, South China Sea, et cetera. Again, the issues weren't necessarily the wrong issues. I would have preferred we use different tactics. And obviously, the language and the rhetoric that the former president used, I would have tried to approach it a slightly more diplomatic way. And I think you see that in the fact that the Biden administration hasn't rushed to undo some of the policy changes that occurred under the Trump administration. 
I also think that's indicative of how the United States and our friends and like-valued allies approach China has really now become not a democratic or republican issue. I think it's the one area where you see strong bipartisan interest and ability to, to work together. And I'd say that also is occurring between the House and the Senate. I'd use the U.S. Innovation Competition Act that the Senate passed last summer I don't see it as a China bill, but I do see it as a bill that's an investment in the United States that helps us in this competition in the 21st century around technology, around business, around influence. And that was a strong bipartisan bill. It's my hope that the House passes a similar bill or that particular piece of legislation fairly shortly with a strong bipartisan vote. And I think that's indicative of how Democrats and Republicans are working together along with the administration. So, Representative Barra, I heard about how China is an area of bipartisan consensus, and I wanted to tease that out a little bit more. Are there particular areas where we see both sides of the aisle within the United States very much agree on when it comes to China? And are there areas where, despite this underlying consensus, there are different shades of thinking about how to approach China? You've seen in this Congress real strong bipartisan support for Taiwan, the One China Policy, support for the Taiwan Relations Act, and a real strong message to China to say, look, we as Democrats and Republicans have not changed our One China Policy, but we strongly support the perspective of the people of Taiwan to choose their path forward which is consistent with the Taiwan Relations Act. That's been strongly bipartisan, and that's reflected in legislation that both I've put forward with my ranking member, Representative Steve Shabbat of Ohio, but also in other legislation that's been put forth. I think you've seen strong support for the Biden administration's approach to rebuilding multilateral relations, whether that's trilateral relationship with Japan and Korea, increased engagement in Southeast Asia with the ASEAN nations, I think you've seen strong bipartisan agreement around the AUKUS deal that was signed between the United Kingdom and Australia and the United States. I think you've seen strong bipartisan support for the elevation of the Quad Coalition, India, Japan, Australia, and the United States to the leaders level. Often they'll get couched as, well, this is in reaction to China. And certainly we're aware of what China is doing in the region. But these are also independent elevations of partnerships and relationships that we think are in the United States 21st century strategic values. Those are areas where I think you see broad consensus across Democrats and Republicans along with the House and Senate. Areas where you know the language gets a little bit dicey that are around issues of climate change, around moving folks to reduce carbon emissions. There's still some room between how Democrats might be thinking about this and Republicans as well as how the administration might be moving forward on some of this. But I see those as places where we can continue dialogue and move the conversation forward on climate change. But I think on the geopolitical, strategic, economic competition with China, I don't think there's much daylight between how Democrats and Republicans are thinking about things. Let me follow up on Taiwan. You mentioned Taiwan as one of the issues where there is strong bipartisan consensus. My understanding is that there's not only strong support for Taiwan, but a number of voices within Congress are also saying that the United States should actually change our Taiwan policy, changing the U.S. policy from strategic ambiguity to strategic clarity. Do you see this as a growing trend within Congress, 
or are those views likely to be minority views? You know, I think there are more folks that are saying the strategic ambiguity approach to Taiwan leaves a lot of places for China to misinterpret the U.S. Congress and United States support of the people of Taiwan. And as clearly in the Taiwan Relations Act, we want the people of Taiwan to determine their future. Where I land on this, and I think this is where my Republican colleagues are, is we're not proposing having a kinetic war with China. What we are proposing is to maintain the status quo, which has been beneficial, has created peace and stability and prosperity in the region, both for Taiwan and China. And in order to do that, I think we do have to be very clear in deterrence and deterring China from taking any actions that would really isolate it on the world stage. Part of that, if you look at the bill that I introduced with Mr. Shabbat, the Taiwan Peace and Stability Act, really does reinforce the message that we need to increase Taiwan's participation in the international community. We need to work with the people of Taiwan to address their ability to defend themselves and determine their own path forward. And we need to engage with Taiwan to create more economic stability. I think you're seeing that not just reflect in U.S. policy in terms of strengthening our ties with the people of Taiwan, but I think you're seeing that reflected in the European Union policies. Obviously, we've seen some of the coercive actions that China has taken towards Lithuania. I think that's gotten the European Union's attention. And I think increasingly, you're seeing more international recognition to say to China, don't take any untoward action to change the status quo. Again, the United States hasn't changed our one China policy, but we continue to stand steadfast with the people of Taiwan. We also, I think, have to be very clear that if China were to militarily invade Taiwan, there would be economic ramifications towards China. There would be political ramifications towards China, in addition to any other military or other ramifications. We want that to be part of China's calculus to say, hey, this just doesn't make sense. And the world still views Taiwan and the PRC in this one China policy realm. Thank you. You mentioned that climate change is an area where the views in Congress are a little dicey and are a little bit more split. I think climate change speaks to a larger question of how should the United States or could the United States cooperate with China? So climate change is usually listed as one of the top issues along with cooperation on public health or COVID-19. Afghanistan, North Korea, and Iran are also typically listed as areas of cooperation. Of the range of issues that we could cooperate with China on, are there particular issues that you think are most important or useful? And could cooperation on these issues actually change the overall nature of the U.S.-China relationship? Bonnie, I think you went through a pretty thorough list of places One area that I'd also add to that is Burma, Myanmar, where our interests may coincide as well. So let's start with climate change. I do think the United States and China can find some opportunities to cooperate in this space. Yeah, I certainly think the United States is going to move a little bit faster than China, but I think China, from an economic perspective, understands that the future of energy utilization probably is less on fossil fuels and more on cleaner fuels. And if they are making those investments in, let's say, better battery technology, better renewables, cleaner energy sources, yeah, those are smart investments that can help their economic interests in the 21st century. They also can align with ours. And you know, we don't combat climate change on an individual country level because it's something that impacts the entire world. 
We're seeing more severe weather patterns here in the United States. They're seeing more severe weather patterns in China. And I think that is an area where hopefully we can find a cooperative framework. I think the other areas that you pointed out, Afghanistan um, being one that's in my region, I don't think it's in the United States' interest or China's interest to see Afghanistan fail and devolve into, for lack of a better way of describing it, a failed state or a civil war state where you have multiple different armed factions, groups that are fighting. And from China's perspective, I would think they'd be concerned about Uyghur separatist groups that might be based in Afghanistan that can do cross-border acts of terrorism and the like. So I think there's an area there where, be it good or bad, the Taliban is what we have right now. And is there a way to create more of a coalition government that creates some stability in Afghanistan? I think that's a fairly urgent crisis, given that we're going into the cold season and there's a looming humanitarian food crisis. Can we work together to avert some of that and hopefully maintain some stability in Afghanistan? I touched on Myanmar. That's another area where I'm very concerned that we're headed towards a civil war as the Tatmadaw approach. Do you think there'll be a major offensive there? We also see the civil society resistance movement, which is very different than it has been in the past. I think they're digging in, along with obviously the the longstanding ethnic minority issues that have taken place. The window to de-escalate some of this from a political perspective really is closing. Yeah, I don't think China wants to see a refugee humanitarian crisis on its border there. And I think China seeks stability in Burma. I think we see stability in a political path forward. So that might be an area where we can work together as well. Representative Barra, you mentioned Afghanistan. We recently had a debate on China power where we had a leading Chinese expert, Senior Colonel Zhou Bo, and a leading U.S. expert from CSIS. Dr. Seth Jones, debate China's potential influence on Afghanistan and how the United States and China could work together. Both experts made the point that regardless of how you view the current Afghanistan government, the Afghanistan people are suffering right now. They both recommended that the United States should consider unfreezing our aid to Afghanistan, particularly as the country is facing severe climate issues and famine. What are your thoughts on this? Yeah, you know, I was just in the region in Pakistan and also had a chance to meet with our embassy Kabul staff that's stationed in Doha. I actually agree. Right now, Afghanistan's facing a liquidity crisis and some of the assets that are currently frozen, how do we make those assets available to the people of Afghanistan? And I think you will see increased efforts from bipartisan members of Congress understanding that we want to avert this humanitarian crisis. So I agree with the statements of Dr. Jones and others that how do we get that capital there? I don't know that politically you can drive that capital through the Taliban because you may not know if it gets to the appropriate agencies, but could you move it through the UN bank and other agencies? I also get the impression that there is some sense of security in Kabul and the surrounding region. So it looks like NGOs and workers are going back there. So again, perhaps it's getting resources and paying salaries of teachers directly, of NGO workers and aid workers directly. I do think there is some sense in a bipartisan way of how can we get those resources to the Afghan people. The other areas people have identified where the United States could cooperate with China are related to nonproliferation, mainly North Korea and Iran. Do you see potential for the United States and China to significantly and substantively 
cooperate on North Korea and Iran? Or is it more of China has its own interests that partially overlap with the United States, and the United States is trying to move things forward where possible? I do think nonproliferation is an area that we should start a conversation because what we don't want to do is get into a nuclear arms race with the Chinese. Their nuclear deterrence policy has really been one having a minimal nuclear arsenal that was enough to deter anyone from direct invasion in China. So I think there is some urgency, and I think the Biden administration gets that, and they probably started some of that dialogue. I also think the issue of biosecurity kind of touches on places of cooperation on global health. CSIS just issued a report on how the United States and China could work together in the global health space and issued some recommendations where we might find room for cooperation. I think that's a report that's worth looking at, and it's one that I've had my staff go through to see if we couldn't start that conversation. I recently met with the Chinese ambassador to the United States. He proactively brought up working together on global health security. So I think there are areas where we can start this dialogue and find some common ground. So one of the other topics I want to discuss with you is China's economic growth, power, and its use of coercion against other countries. How do you view China's activities in the economic space? And what, from the congressional standpoint, should the United States do? Yeah, so let's take the issue of economic coercion first. And that's a bill that we've also introduced to ask the administration to do a study to get a better sense of how China uses economic coercion, what tools we should use to better counter the economic coercion that that China does. So there's lots of examples. You know, you could go back to a few years ago when we deployed bad batteries to South Korea for South Korea's defense against North Korea, the Chinese retaliated against the Korean people economically by limiting the number of tourists and folks that could travel to South Korea to shop. Obviously, that had a major impact that continues today in South Korea. You've seen it more recently in how they've approached the Australians when Australians did raise the issue of COVID origins. You saw immediate economic retaliation against Australians. And I think it's that heavy-handed approach that you've seen multiple times in multiple areas that we have to better understand and come up with the tools along with our like-valued allies like Australia, Japan, others, where we could work together to counter China's economic coercion, particularly with some of the smaller countries in Asia, some of the ASEAN nations that may be more vulnerable to Chinese economic pressures. On other areas that we're in active conversation in Congress, the pandemic really did expose an over-reliance on a single source for many of our critical supply chains, whether that's rare earth elements, some of the raw ingredients in critical pharmaceuticals, et cetera. We are actively thinking about how can we shore up our supply chains where it makes sense onshore and bring it back to the United States, but or nearshore to closer countries. But also, how can we work with countries like Vietnam, Indonesia, Thailand, the Philippines to strategically create redundant supply chains where it makes sense? I think those are issues that are right in front of us right now that we're actively discussing both in Congress and with the administration. And then, obviously, I mentioned the U.S. Innovation Competition Act that the Senate passed last summer. That will help us shore up our semiconductor industry 
certainly bring some of the semiconductor manufacturing back to the United States, but also then in the spaces like rare earth elements, et cetera, we certainly are exploring how best to strengthen those supply chains. In terms of helping our allies and partners counter Chinese economic coercion, you mentioned the United States is thinking of ways to help smaller countries as well as some of our closest allies. Are the measures currently being considered in Congress bilateral ones or multilateral measures? You know, I think it's both. I don't think it's either or. Let's take the issue of a digital trade regime. I would like us to think about digital trade and and setting up the rules of whether that's fintech and how digital currency moves through the region. I would like to do that in a multilateral way. It's possible that it starts in a bilateral areas of agreement. And then on the flip side, we talked a little bit about supply chain redundancy. Let's take the issue of rare earths. I'm told that Vietnam has potential to grow some of that industry. It might be that we're strategic in creating some redundancy and working with the Vietnamese to build up their rare capabilities. Indonesia has a growing pharmaceutical sector. We could work with U.S. industry and U.S. pharmaceutical companies to partner with Indonesia to create redundant supplies. So I think it's both a bilateral approach with countries that is country-specific, but also a multilateral approach. Are you seeing any discussion of measures similar to, for example, an economic NATO or some form of way in which we would either retaliate against China for its economic sanctions against key U.S. allies or partners, or we could potentially compensate the victim or targets of Chinese economic coercion? Part of the purpose of the bill that we introduced earlier in this Congress to better understand economic coercion and better understand the tools that would be available for us to counter economic coercion is to answer that question directly. Right now, I think the way China's approach, and I'll use Australia as an example, I just think they were very heavy-handed in the coercive measures that they took to retaliate against Australia. That pushed Australia closer to us and given us an opportunity to work together. You know, I mentioned earlier that you've seen the, the Quad Coalition rise to a leader's level. I think China's actions on India's northern border has made India very wary of where China is headed and has strengthened the relationship between India, Australia, the United States, and Japan. I think people have viewed the Quad in the past as more of a geopolitical security tool. I think it could very much be an economic tool that could also take the four countries and work together with the smaller countries to give them some resilience to Chinese economic portion. I don't think we want to take retaliatory measures against China, much as they're doing to us, but I think we want to build the internal resilience and economic strength of some of the smaller Asian nations. And certainly, I've taken a, a real interest in Southeast Asia, and you've seen the administration take that interest in Southeast Asia, not as a pawn in the U.S.-China competition, but understanding the centrality of Southeast Asia and that this is a vibrant region that has many growing industries. How can we work with them to build their own resilience to Chinese economic coercion? Representative Barron, you just mentioned that you are quite focused on Southeast Asia. What is your view of Chinese activities in the South China Sea? China is engaging in a range of gray zone operations in the region, including via its Coast Guard and maritime militia. How do you see dynamics playing out there? 
And how much time do you spend focusing on the challenges China poses to our allies and partners, given its activities in the South China Sea? You know, we're very concerned with what China is doing in the South China Sea. And you know, certainly that concern goes back to 2014, 2015, when you saw them starting to build some of these islands. The challenge today is going to be much more difficult because they've already militarized you know, some of those islands and be very difficult to reverse that. That said, when we talk to nations that we have treaty relationships with, like the Philippines, Thailand, recently in Jakarta, they all are seeing very overtly in the Philippines some of the gray zone activities that are taking place in the Philippines um, fishing territories. That's driving the Philippines in our direction as well, in a way that when I was there two years ago, I didn't necessarily see. The same thing when I was in Jakarta, you know, talking about Indonesia's sovereign maritime space. Some of what the Chinese are doing around the Natuna Islands is a very much concern to the Indonesians. So I think this is another area where the United States, along with Japan, Australia, can work with the ASEAN nations, particularly the maritime ASEAN nations, to make sure we protect freedom of navigation, freedom of goods through the South China Sea, because it's a very important waterway, not just to our economy, but to the economy of the countries in that region, given the number of goods that move through there. It's our hope that instead of escalating the region militarily, that you can de-escalate the region in a way that is prosperous, not just for the countries in the region, but also prosperous for China. That hasn't been the direction Xi Jinping's been moving the PRC in. But our hope would be if we have strong alliances with the countries and strong relationships with the countries in Southeast Asia, along with our other partners like Australia, New Zealand, Japan, India, that we can create a context where China says, okay, let's de-escalate this. So it's not China against everyone else. How do we have in the 21st century a competition, which is fine, but a competition that's based on the best of what we do as the United States, but also the best of what China can do? Again, yeah, the hope would be to avoid a direct kinetic confrontation, but we can both thrive in the 21st century. Your comments just reminded me of the administration's desire to establish guardrails for the U.S.-China relationship. Are you seeing guardrails being established? What else could the United States do on this front, like you mentioned, to bound the competition between the two countries? China's rhetoric, they're having to react to the United States. I actually think it's the exact opposite. We're not the ones who changed the calculus in the South China Sea. We're not the ones that are harassing fishing boats in the Philippines. We're not the ones that are increasing aggression around Taiwan. I think we're having to react to what China is doing, but we're also very clear-eyed at this point in time because Xi Jinping has very much laid out what the Chinese ambitions are. Is there a way to moderate that? And is there a way to find moderating voices within China and within the Chinese Communist Party that can say, hey, wait a minute, is there a different context where both the United States and China, as well as the other countries in the region, can thrive in the 21st century? That one looks harder today than it might have looked 10 years ago, given the direction and the rhetoric that Xi Jinping has taken um, the PRC. That said, I don't think we should give up on that. And that's where you know, we talked earlier about areas of potential cooperation, whether that's global health, whether that's climate change, whether that's nonproliferation. We ought to look for those areas of potential cooperation. 
and ultimately reestablish lines of dialogue and communication. I also know the administration has certainly at high levels, whether it's Secretary of Defense Austin, Secretary of State Blinken, are trying to establish those lines of communication. So you have tools that that we had with the Soviet Union in the Cold War to de-escalate tension. Too many wars have been started by misinterpretation and misunderstanding. And I think there's an imperative to have those open lines of communication. So if there are inadvertent escalations, we have mechanisms by which to de-escalate tension. Thank you. I want to shift the conversation a bit to what the United States can do more at home. So you talked a bit about the United States innovating at home and what we can do on that front. I also want to get your sense of how you assess Chinese disinformation as well as influence operations within the United States. Do you think Congress has done enough to react to Chinese efforts in the United States? I think the best way for us to compete with China is to invest in ourselves. I think that's why I'm a big supporter of the U.S. Innovation Competition Act, a bipartisan bill. I think we will get that passed in the House or a version of it, and hopefully to the president's desk fairly early in January 2020. That's an investment in what we do best and rebuilding an industry, the semiconductor industry that we invented. I think other things that we've already done in this Congress is the bipartisan infrastructure bill. That is a huge investment in the United States. It's about rebuilding and bringing our infrastructure into the 21st century. It's as much about our competing in an interconnected world in the 21st century. I think that also is a great investment in our competition with China. Other areas where I do think we have to do a little bit more work on is revamping and modernizing our immigration system. We have more students coming from China to get educated in the United States than any other country. A lot of those students, if they got their PhDs and had the opportunity to get a green card, would be willing to stay here. And it's not just China, it's India and the rest of the world. We really ought to want those students to stay and start their companies and contribute to the U.S. economy, especially if we're educating them. So I think that's an area where we could do a better job with our foreign exchange student programs and recruiting some of the best and brightest, but allowing them to be part of the fabric of the United States. So I think those are just three areas where we could make investments here. One of the things that I'm very concerned about is the China initiative that started under the Trump administration, but has continued under the Biden administration, where the FBI is looking at both Chinese Americans as well as Chinese academics and others that are here. I think we have to have real checks and balances. So yes, there's a real concern that Chinese espionage may be taking place both in the corporate sector, academic sector, and the defense sector. We should be conscious of that, but we should also balance that to understand that there really is a lot of anti-Asian sentiment that started in the last administration, but has continued to grow anti-Chinese sentiment. Let's not repeat the mistakes of the past that we saw in World War II with Japanese internment camps and the approach to Japanese Americans. I want to make sure we have the right balance here that Chinese Americans have been part of the fabric of the United States for generations, and they've contributed greatly to the United States. So let's not get the Chinese American community wrapped up in U.S.-China competition. In addition, I think we do have to look at how China uses economic coercive tools or direct investment in U.S. companies. And that's where we have tools like CFDS and others where I think we have to be really careful where China is making investments in U.S. companies. 
I don't think we've done enough as Congress to put those safeguards up. Representative Vera, I want to end this podcast by asking you to look forward. So where do you see U.S.-China relations heading in the next couple of years? What are you most worried about? And also, if possible, what are you most optimistic about? I think the next couple of years could be rocky. I'm very worried that there could be a misstep around Taiwan. I hope that doesn't occur. I would reiterate that we've not changed our one China policy, but we very much support the people of Taiwan determining their path forward. So I'd hate to have an accidental military confrontation. I do hope that we do find some areas of cooperation as we come out of the pandemic. Global health seems to be a natural. How do we build some global resiliency and biosecurity? That seems to be another area where we might be able to work together. And it's hard to do diplomacy um, over Zoom. So there's been very limited travel from the congressional perspective, but also from the diplomatic perspective to China during the pandemic as both China and the United States have grappled with beating COVID-19. Hopefully, if that opens up, you will see some Codell and others traveling to China to reestablish diplomatic ties. I think there's a wide-eyed recognition right now, Democrats and Republicans, that we are going to be competitors with China. But that doesn't mean that we can't find places to cooperate. Can we change the narrative where it's in both China's interest as well as the United States' interest to see a thriving Indo-Pacific, Southeast Asia? I think that's what my goal would be, where It's not either or. The countries of the region are going to have relations with both the United States and China. But if it's a fair playing field and there's a rules-based order competition and economic growth, can we have that competition similar to what we had with Japan? I think it'll be different because Japan's a democratic nation. But on the economic playing field, China's got some very competitive companies that are out there. We shouldn't be afraid of that competition. We should actually embrace it because it could make both of us stronger and better. Thank you very much, Representative Vera, for joining us today. You leave us with much to think about in the year of 2022. Thank you very much. Great. Thanks, Bonnie. Looking forward to peaceful, prosperous, stable 21st century.